Hey, Risto here from George Mason University. Uh, we are here with Dr. Carrie Saffron from Teachers College. Uh, Carrie is the recipient of the Larry Locke Graduate Student Award from our special interest group at AERA. Um, she also just recently defended her dissertation uh, at Teachers College. Um, so we do have a special paper here today, something much different than what we've covered previously, uh, something much different than I've, that I've read uh, previously. So the paper was published in Reconceptualizing Educational Research Methodology. And yes, this to me is really reconceptualizing methodology uh, in the way that I've looked at it. So. Carrie, thank you so much for joining us to talk about your article. Hi, Risto. Uh, thanks so much for having me on the podcast. So I'm looking forward to chatting with you. The first qualitative research class I ever took was actually with you over the summer, maybe, mm -hmm. I don't know, six, six years ago. Yeah. I, I've, I've lost track of time. Um, but before that, I had no clue what qualitative research was, and now we're here. So looking forward to chatting. Awesome. And uh, for those of you listening, we do have a, an episode that launched at the same time as this uh, that breaks down a couple of the theories that Carrie uses just to kind of shorten this podcast up a bit. So uh, let's get right into that paper. Um, it's part of your dissertation. So can you explain to everybody what was your dissertation on? Yeah, so this at Teachers College or my department, we use that three format, uh, three manuscript format. Mm -hmm. And but just to kind of go back to your question, what was your dissertation? It's first a difficult question for me to answer, um, and I'm not always good at giving very succinct answers. But the gist of it was to explore the ways in which Black and Latinx youth interact with health and fitness in an urban after-school program. And it was really me hanging out with some of the kids in the after-school program two to three days a week for 18 months. It's a visual ethnography. And that's what I love about ethnography is it's a lot about hanging out to see what's going on, and you don't necessarily have an idea of what's going to happen. I started with some participant observation in the weight room at the after-school program, and with this being a visual ethnography, borrowing from Sarah Pink's book, it evolved over time. So I used various methods with different participants at different times, such as the nine-week scrapbooking project, and part of that is uh, the data that are in the specific paper. So talk to me about going into this research. You explain in the very beginning of this article that you were not really trained to work with this age group or generally just in after-school programming. So how was that? Yeah. Yeah, so I always want to say or feel like that I want to say I'm not trained in any particular way, whether as a researcher, educator, or to work with young people. Um, but a number of connections brought me to this after-school context in the research that I started. One was from being a personal trainer and just hoping to provide people, and that includes young people, a more comfortable space or experience in that weight room or gym setting. And two was from my partner, Dwayne, who was working at the after-school program at the time and came home telling me fascinating stories mm -hmm. about what kids were doing in the gym or what they weren't doing or who they were listening to or weren't listening to. And three was actually from working with adults who drove me crazy, either because it was like that older man who only wanted to do push-ups and full-on sit-ups, or women who were afraid to get bulky or wanted to get like a, rid of that non-existent little bit of flab around their stomach. Um, I know I'm like kind of categorizing people here, but <laughs> I think, but I think I kind of naively hope that maybe starting with kids, um, you might be able to open up different perspectives of what working out can be. But like I said, I hadn't done research prior to this. So in certain ways that made it incredibly nerve wracking, but it also produced the unexpected. So it opened up paths 
to listen to the kids, to observe what was going on, and just try to be flexible as where to this where this might go. Um, again, I hadn't been formally trained as an educator, but as much of this lack of training continues to make me uncomfortable, I also found that being uncomfortable and uncertain led to those unexpected openings and possibilities. So in a visual ethnography, according to Sarah Pink, there isn't necessarily a blueprint for how to do things. And previous work such as that gave me hope that it was okay not to be trained. Um, and, and that's kind of really where I tried to start and tried to rely on. So in that roundabout answer to your question, yes, I was never formally trained to do research or work with young people, but I also think or hope that became an advantage at times. Yeah, and I think that sometimes when you are specifically or classically trained for one specific type of duty, then you bring in a lot of biases that way. You know, mm -hmm. I, I wouldn't say that I was trained to work in after-school programs either, but that was just kind of where I ended up doing uh, a lot of the research. So, um, and it's great that you're honest with this. You know, I think that it's uh, in your paper too, you come out right away and say that this isn't maybe the traditional route, but I'm thinking that there's a lot more people who don't take a traditional route and end up getting where yeah. they, where they are. So, yeah. Um, yeah. let me ask you about um, moving beyond this traditional qualitative methodology. Um, to me, this paper uses methods that I'm not very familiar with. So why didn't you just stick with the like kind of like deductive and inductive analysis uh, that you did in the beginning? I think just to go back for a second, I think you brought up an interesting point in terms of like that traditional route. And I think it's a question, what is even traditional in the first place? Mm -hmm. um, because like we said, I'm not, I wasn't trained as a researcher, but because of like the courses we took, I had been using those more traditional deductive or inductive methods. So coding, looking for categories and themes to bring together. And I also didn't really know much about data analysis. I'm not saying I do now, but I started to discover that some of these more linear methods didn't mesh well with my actual research. Um, and I kept coming back to the same conclusions. Okay, health and fitness are complex, but so what? Why does this matter? And I was trying to figure out what else was I was miss what else I was missing by just coding and categorizing similar themes instead of questioning that uncomfortable feeling and the unexpected. And so there was so much more I was sensing from this data and especially like different moments within the scrapbooking, within the weight room with the kids. And it wasn't being represented in the traditional approaches I was using. And what really started this is I took two classes at TSA at Teachers College. One was a data analysis class with Haney Yoon and the other was with Lalitha Vasudevan, a multimodal methods class. And both of these classes provided an opportunity to start inquiring and imagining more. So this idea of collaging started with an assignment in Haney's class. Um, we had this great assignment called Data Inquiry in Three Ways and tried out three different approaches. And my last approach was this little mini collage, which was collage on a very small level, much different than what I did here. And, but it really seemed to stick. Um, and then it expanded in the class with Lalitha, and we talked a lot about different ways of inquiry and also how to uh, represent our work. Um, Lalitha really encouraged us to play around with multiple platforms, maybe not relying so much on writing uh, in the traditional sense. And I think this is also how this process expanded beyond a linear maybe deductive, inductive approach. We played around a lot, and it was really about expanding and building upon ideas, using different representations to show multiple perspectives. So just going further into this, I started to realize I also needed to open up other ways of looking at my data in order to push back at that same old knowledge that I, too, reproduce 
And this is a long way of saying I found affect theory and collaging helpful to push back at those binaries and the traditional inductive, deductive approaches that seem to recreate those binaries, at least for me. And like, I know I'm going on here, but just on a side note, I think that the collaging and some of these alternative inquiry approaches appealed to me because it, it produced an open discussion for analysis. And kind of that goes back to how it became important for me to open this whole discussion up. So it produced an open discussion for my analysis or data analysis in general. And that's really what I hope to do, um, lay out what I did, provide an opening for discussion. And I didn't really recognize that a lot of this is possible before using some of these approaches. Right. And I think part of what you said earlier was like you weren't trained as a researcher in this way. But I think at the same time you were, you know, you, you have been taking these classes. And I, and I think when I was at TC, I took qualitative research methods classes and visual methodologies and you know, when when I'm now looking at it, you know, like a lot of the way that I code, a lot of the way that I do uh, qualitative research has changed just because the field, I feel like, reshifted under my feet. You know, I'm reading the mm -hmm. stuff that some of our colleagues are writing about, some of the stuff that you write about, some of the stuff that Dylan Landy writes about. I'm like, whoa, that's way over my head. And that's not what I learned in school. <laughs> It's over my head too. <laughs> yeah, and it's like it's like all of a sudden the the room kind of flipped upside down, and I'm looking at the traditional method that I have been taught how to collect data and how to interact with data. You know, I, and I think where you publish this paper and the title of this paper speaks a lot to that. Um, so, but let me ask you this: you you use some of these words like re-presenting with a dash in between R E and presenting. And you do research with, again, a dash after the re. What do you mean by representing your dissertation? Mm -hmm. So that's an interesting question and, and obviously not something I just came up with on my own. Um, so first, the dashes first. Um, personally, I, I see it as a way to indicate that things uh, can never really be shown or represented exactly as they were. And in so many ways, we continue to take things apart and put them back together in different ways across different platforms. So even what I say here and now might be different than what I would say after I think back on this tonight. Um, and then different people will pick up on different ideas throughout this podcast. And just we're always representing things based on our particular lenses. Um, specifically, I drew from Louisa Allen, uh, who used the term re presentation in the opening chapter of her book on young people and sexuality and to make it clear that any representation is a representation. And to quote her, she writes, it is a methodological impossibility to extract and represent students' perspectives exactly as they intended. So that's what became important for me to remember. And same thing with terms like rethink, research, um, I discovered possibilities in these from an article by Levy, House, and Wright. It's titled Down the Methodological Rabbit Hole. And in their process, they too took a step back with data from a previous project and began to look at things in a different way. So the dash is almost a stepping way, stepping away from, say, maybe some more established connections to rethink and represent it again, but maybe differently that time, or at least trying to do it differently because I don't know if we or I can ever do that. Uh, successfully. And so if we're speaking of uh, representing my dissertation or particular parts of data, that's really how I see, I guess, any piece of work. Um, 
I can never do justice to the work that the youth put in, and I'm always implicated in the process. So anything I put down is really just that, a representation, a taking part, and reassembling, and here through a theoretically mediated process of collaging and affect. Yeah. And one of the uh, quotes that really stuck out when I was reading this was, I began to discover part of the problem in health and fitness and PE fields, like other areas in education, is that research continues to be centered on outcomes over process. What did you mean by that? I feel like I always rely on this 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 idea, and it comes from a Katie Strom article. Um, and I, I think we have this drive, and this is just my maybe opinion or feeling, I think we have this drive in research, education, life, to search for outcomes or results that can be neatly packaged with a little bow to present and say, hey, look at what I found, and I see this in so many aspects of my life, whether it's as a personal trainer and then with my partner, Dwayne, who is a PA teacher in a charter school and what the requirements are for the students and how he's going to be evaluated. And even my participants brought that, that idea up in terms of their GPA or their weight um, being a determining factor in how they're categorized. So I felt a lot of times our need to give specific outcomes does a disservice to the school, for educators, for our students, and maybe even to us. And I think as doctoral students new to research, we may sometimes be pushed to ask, okay, what did you find? How can you sum this up? And it became important to also stop, pause, and reflect along the way. So this approach really allowed me to do that, to try to start to be okay in pausing at moments I wasn't sure of, questioning things that came up. And in this process, it actually produced for me at least, a more intricate examination into the data and the research. And also, I think I just really started to enjoy the process of all this mm -hmm. and just the process of research. And I think that's one of the reasons that I do this. Um, it's really about, for me, the engagement with the young participants, the teens. And that was what made it worthwhile, learning from them. And I'd like to be able to think we're doing something they wouldn't usually have the opportunity to do. Um, so for me, it was really about engaging with the teens in the process and hopefully hopefully having fun above all else, because I think that's what we all need um, to play around and have some fun. So can you explain how you re, again, in parentheses, using the dash, reanalyze this data? Did I, I don't know. Did I use that dash in my paper too? Um, I, I think so. Yeah, probably. I don't know. I'm, I'm becoming a dash over user, probably. But um, a lot of this goes back to the data analysis class, again, that I took with Haney Yoon and your earlier question about moving past inductive deductive methods. Uh, in the paper, in this paper, I specifically draw Maggie McClure's interpretation of coding wonder, coding and wonder, and Holbrook and Portier's use of collaging and always doubting what I was doing. In doing this, I began by focusing on one week of a nine-week scrapbooking project, during which the participants and I explored health and fitness-related magazines. We all made collages in our scrapbooks that week, drawing from those magazines. So I mentioned earlier that I had used some more traditional analysis approaches, but there was something missing here. Uh, the actual scrapbooking process during the research was generative. The inquiry process with linear approaches, not so much. And then I discovered possibilities through affect and collaging. So there's this video that accompanies this paper, and that really shows the beginning process. But to break it down a little, I first started with pictures of each of our collages done on the third week of the scrapbooking project. And at that same time, I was reading and rereading scholarship around affect. 
I was also pulling in the transcripts and conversations from the research and started to highlight some of the things the youth had said to me in relation to the magazines. And I started to bring in my own field notes from the research and then even started keeping an ongoing reflection of what I was doing throughout this process. So all these things started to circulate, and it allowed me to begin to layer things over one another, bring in things I might not have noticed, um, and really pause and stop and start again. Then it also brought in things I had no idea that were going to happen, so starting to take pictures along the way, making a PowerPoint, and then a video. And I hope the video, um, again, demonstrates some of that. Yeah, and we'll get to that video in a little bit, which I think yeah. is a really interesting uh, way that you present, uh, re-present the data. Um, so I think, and on a side note, one, I think you are, you've been very honest in your writing. I think a lot of what you write refers to a podcast that just came out, the podcast before this, with uh, Dr. Lambert from Monash University that talks about uh, similar similar ways of just the way both of you have written and reanalyzed some data, which I think is a cool concept. But when when you approach this type of research as one type of researcher, so you have an exercise physiology background, and then you're going into an after school uh, program and collecting qualitative data. So this is a time before you really got into materialist or new materials methodologies. How do you then separate yourself in order to be able to analyze this research from a new lens? And does that even matter? I guess, I guess what I mean is, can you be one type of researcher while collecting data and then a different type of researcher when analyzing data? Yeah, so this is a great question, and um, I could answer it for a long time. <laughs> um, the short answer is yes, and because we're always different types of researcher. We are researchers. We are always different people, depending on where we are in our lives, who we're working with, so colleagues, participants, where we're working, the context of our research, or just our everyday lives. So I think uh, in the type of work I ended up doing, and maybe in all work, we are, again, different types of researchers at any given point because hopefully we are changing or becoming as we are affected by the process and also affect the process ourselves. Um, but again, this is a great question that no matter what or how I answer, I'll have more to say later or different things to say. And it goes back to one of your first questions, again, about not being trained as a researcher or to work with young people in the setting. Because of that, and, you know, I mentioned in my video and maybe in this, that supplemental podcast a little bit, I consider, because I consider myself theory adverse, I would say I did not necessarily enter the research in any particular way. Yes, there was a plan. Yes, there were methods. But I tried to really be open. And it, it was a struggle. I mentioned in the paper about having to refer to myself as the primary researcher when I first wrote things up. And there was something off about that. I had spent so much time in the research site with these kids and to leave all that out and refer to myself as the primary researcher, to use Maggie McClure's words, put me at arm's length from the data and did not fit. And this was a very personal process with lots of trust and respect, trust and respect on many different levels. Um, I felt that and always have, but didn't know how to connect what I was sensing with maybe the more technical language. And that's where new materialism and affect entered. A new materials lens really offered a chance for me to further think about my subjectivities and connection to all that was going on around me. Um, and really what I hope to do was acknowledge this. And I, I 
just all I can do is try. I'm not saying I do a good job, but I try. And first and foremost, I want to acknowledge that this is what a new materials lens gave me. It gave me an opportunity to do outright, to be upfront about my role as it's always changing in this unpredictable research process. So it was very interesting reading through, and you do a really good job detailing how you analyze the collages. Can you explain why did you like literally cut and recut and reorganize um, the collages in, in the way that you described in the paper? This is really where, again, affect and the materiality of the collages, the pictures, the images, the words uh, came into play. But it was a combination of a lot of things. First, I can't emphasize enough um, how much it goes back to the data analysis class I took with Haney Yoon. Um, and her approach in this class is really what even gave me the impetus to think that this is possible in the first place. Um, because like you said, like kind of, we were taught, I think, a lot of the more traditional methods. And mm-hmm. sometimes it's scary, like it is, it's not sometimes, it is scary to take that leap and uh, not know where this is going. But in addition to that, I also have to draw on some of the scholarship that influenced this. And in particular, it was an article by Terry Holbrook and Nicole Portier titled Collages Analysis, Remixing in the Crisis of Doubt. And this was from a special issue of Qualitative Inquiry in 2014. And I'd recommend this issue to anybody interested in learning about um, data analysis, because it's all about how do you do data analysis after coding. Um, There were many different approaches, uh, but this article from Holbrook and Porchier began to connect with my research, because after all, wasn't what the participants and I were doing considered collaging. So what better way uh, to continue to embody the research process than with a continued collaging? So this combination of Haney's class and then the article gave me some support that, okay, maybe this can be possible. Um, so that's probably where this idea of collaging as analysis emerged in the first place. And then terms, in terms of the cutting, recutting, and organizing in this paper, I want to again refer to um, Holbrook and Portier. There's a quote I use from the article in my paper, uh, kind of paraphrasing, they speak about sometimes organizing their materials and categories and other times not knowing why they selected a piece. And this is really it. Um, It's what our friends called systematic chaos, as I mentioned in the video. It's a combination of theory, writing, and collaging that affected me to cut and recut things the way I did. And there's not necessarily, it's not a linear path, but there is a systematic process to it because I think through each part of it, but there's also a chaotic part to it because I start to pull different things together. And it also became about letting in the materiality and all these materials of the collaging, and I really didn't expect this to happen, but the material started to produce affects on me, and this letting go or trying to let go did lead me to other things like the video. Right. So you mentioned the video, um, which was very interesting. I think I, I have not seen a full video like that as a part of a peer-reviewed article, and I think it's a really great, uh, great thing. Can you talk to me about the process of why why you did it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So again, it's, I feel like everything's always a combination of things, and one was really this journal gave you, and the call for this special issue gave you gave me the opportunity to do this, to do a video. Um, the call for the special issue explicitly asked for different ways to represent your research on your submission. And I feel like I've, I, that 
that seems to be one of the benefits of an online and open access journal that mm-hmm. I was able to do this video. Um, and two, again, I mentioned I was taking this class at the same time where we, we were being encouraged to explore our analysis in multimodal ways. And that led to the video. And then three, really playing with and bringing in affect theory. Um, and it, affect is no longer just about discourse or language. So it opened up this ability to show or create something like a video that can produce affect as well. And I began to see such a benefit in creating, playing around with the data, and then representing it in a video. It allowed me to figure out parts of the process in more depth. I was um, also able to show it to many people who would not normally watch it, like my mom. It's the mm-hmm. only thing she's watched or paid attention to in the entire time of my dissertation. Um, and it also provided an ongoing reflexive process. I can continue to look back at what I did. Um, so it started to do all these things. I really didn't even expect it. And, but I just had this idea that I'd like to make something interactive in combination with the written paper. Um, we often turn to writing. I often turn to writing to express myself in everyday life and in academia. And I like to wonder how we can push beyond that to open our research to different people in different ways. And I, I, hope that this video can offer that yeah and i think that um you know it's, a, it's an interesting way to do it for sure and i think it's it's different than the norm and i you know uh karen lambert's piece last week um she also had qr codes that linked to short videos like short segments but you really created this video and i think of you know thinking about academic conferences of how different everybody goes up to the podium and talks Mm -hmm. and gives a PowerPoint Mm -hmm. presentation. But is there a rule that you can't just put up a well-made video that's exactly 12 Mm -hmm. minutes long and just press play? Like, I think I've thought about doing that, but I just don't have the chutzpah to go up and just like break the norm in front of all of my, you know, all the senior scholars that are going to be there. I joked about, yeah. Yeah. I joked about doing that this year because it, 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 plays around with my whole, the use of affect, or just doing some kind of video to break it up. Um, and I, I think, like, the whole rule is, yeah, there should, I don't know, there should, should there be, there shouldn't be any, well, there are, should be rules, but. Yeah, but there is there, also. Um, there's also room. Yeah, and there's also uh, poster presentations that had this big mm-hmm. QR code, and some somewhere online that I saw this, that it just had a big question mark, and just, like, Q, do this QR code, and you can see this, and. And I think that there is there's a lot of space to do this differently. And and you did do this differently. So let me ask you this question. Overall, the process of going back to this data, you'd already laid it down. How was that process of reanalyzing it? What did did you find anything new from there? Yeah. So if we're specifically looking at this paper, the collaging began to do two things. Um, one, it allowed me to reconsider my own subjectivities. And then it also began to expand uh, the use of modalities in my approach to this research and this analysis. So revisiting data through affect first brought a closeness to the data. Um, As I talked about, I no longer had to be that primary researcher looking for answers. And the materiality of the objects from the magazines to collages to the video began to produce their own affective power. This affective power of material bodies then brought attention to previously unnoticed entanglements. So in the paper, I specifically turned to a part of the collage 
that brought together connections between consumerism, popular culture, obesity, slimness, and nutrition. The materials and the participants' transcripts showed me that they were aware of the high costs of being healthy, which then affected me to further consider the costs, economic, psychological, physical, and otherwise, of normative health and fitness messages. And I, I don't think I was truly stopping to consider a lot of this in the first place and how it all connected. And so from this small cluster, I started to wonder how can we consider which and whose bodies matter in a society that perpetuates links between obesity policy, fitness, culture, and socioeconomics. It also became a question about how can we expand our approaches. So instead of narrowing my data down, I asked, what is this doing as I add in different perspectives and approaches? It was kind of like the reanalyzing was just an ongoing analysis to mm-hmm. other things. So essentially, you were analyzing the analysis of your students' analysis of their world. Uh-huh. <laughs> Am I right? Yeah. So um, in, in a way, yeah. And I said, like, this question, um, I, want, I kind of rethought this question a little bit myself. And I'm going to bring in another term I borrow from Deleuze and Guattari um, in connection with new materialism. And it fit here with this question and with this paper. And that's um, the term assemblage. And I keep going back to a quote, uh, again, from an article by Katie Strom in Journal of Teacher Education. And she writes, uh, to quote her, she writes, an assemblage is a heterogeneous collection of elements, both material and non-material, that come into composition in different ways at different times to produce a particular activity. So if we're talking about this specific paper, I think we can rephrase the question to maybe what is the research assemblage I started with here? And what did that do or produce in this inquiry? So what are the human and material bodies that began to come together and apart in the instance of this paper? And that included many things. Uh, First off, we began with the health and fitness-related magazines that I brought in that week for us to use in our scrapbooking. And those magazines themselves had their own effective power with the images, articles, advertisements, and so on. And then the process of scrapbooking itself was part of this assemblage, Uh, the interactions between human bodies, so the participants and myself, the materials, uh, whether the magazines or the art supplies, and our conversations. And from this process, the magazines and their initial forms were reassembled by each of us. And in this, we drew on our knowledges, experiences, cultures, etc. And then in this revisiting, I began to look at these collages from our scrapbooks and reassemble them further pulling them apart and putting them back together, really sitting with the materials and language that we all, so myself and the youth, had created that day. So yes, maybe in a way this was an analysis of an analysis or a continuous reassembling. But one of the questions to keep in mind is what does their, what do, do young people and what does their and our world even consist of? And what are the elements that can make up a research assemblage at any given point? Right. And so in your paper, you talk about ending the paper in the middle. What do you, what do you mean by that? That's my easy out, that hmm. there's never an end to anything. <laughs> I'll just end there. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it is my easy out. But also um, to bring in another professor at TC, and I'm probably going to pronounce her name wrong because I always do, um, it, uh, Joanna Literate, um, she brought up this idea a couple years back. She's offered this idea of scholarship as conversation. And so first off, I think any, I see any paper I write, um, 
even maybe anything I say, including in this podcast, as an unfinished conversation or dialogue. A published paper to me is a work in progress because I hope it can start conversation, thought, or movement, and there's so much more I had to leave out uh, versus what I was able to put in. So that's just my personal take. Um, But then to draw more specifically on Deleuze and Guattari, I loosely refer to the middle uh, to recognize that from a materialist or new materialist perspective, there are no beginnings or ends. Bodies, whether myself as the researcher or the collages that continue to be reassembled, are always becoming. So I'm sitting here with my copy of the paper that was published in January, and I have notes, highlights, questions all over the thing. It's a mess. And this entanglement of affect theory and collaging produced this paper. But I also see the paper as an invitation for further discussion, even for myself, um, as I continue to write, respond to it, and and build on it. So... Looking back at my qualitative research methods class mm-hmm. with Dr. Knight, she would say, so what? What does this all mean? How does this add to the literature? Yeah, we always have to bring it back to Dr. Michelle knight Manuel. Um, mm-hmm. That class deserves a discussion in itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's the real reason I think I first had any idea what quality qualitative research was or is. But to answer your question or her question, so what What does this all mean and how does it add to the literature? My broad answer is that I, I hope it can open a discussion about different practices for pedagogy and research. I hope it can show people ways to think about inquiry and that it's okay to doubt and then doubt some more. And when I say discussion, I hope it produces a discussion about the ways in which we look at health and fitness among us, whether researchers, practitioners, educators, communities, about the way health and fitness is affecting youth and about the possibilities for doing and looking into research and pedagogical practices. No, you know, no, just all small little things here. Mm-hmm. Um, but I really like, hope that this opening in terms of my process, process can encourage anyone to experiment and play around with different approaches if it fits and be open about it. In showing some of this process, I want to hope that we can find ways to talk about research, analysis, inquiry, our doubts and uncertainties. As a doc student, I really didn't know that this was possible to do. And and like we talked about, I thought I needed to take a linear path at first. Um, fortunately, I did end up having support to realize it didn't have to be this way. And so I hope others are also given the space to realize we don't need to know the answers. And again, to use words from Holbrook and Portier, that research analysis inquiry doesn't end when a study is completed, that there's no end date because the analysis is part of our lives, is in our lives. Um, and, and so lastly, to this question, what does it add? I also want to flip it back to maybe our listeners or your listeners. I'm joining. I'm going to be a co-host from now on. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Welcome. I, I want, and maybe we'll get my parents on too, since I'm living with them. I want to add, but what is, what, in terms of what does it add, I want to turn it around and I want to ask anyone listening to this podcast, reading the paper or watching the video and let me know. Um, because I see it all as an invitation for people to respond in their own ways. And I'm always curious to hear what others have to say. Yeah, and I think overall, when you when your goal is to open up a discussion, um, I think you already did, and I think coming on this podcast helps push that. When this paper came out, I saw it on Twitter, and I was like, okay, let me let me read that and let me look at that, and it 
you really did push my way of thinking of reanalyzing some of the things that I, you know, I, I will admit I have been very linear in the way that I've collected qualitative data. Um, and I think that that's part of who I am and how I've been taught and, you know, reading papers like yours and other papers that go back and reanalyze their data and really work with these uh, different theories, even though you are theory adverse. Um, you know, I, I, I think that those are, it's interesting and you have accomplished at least the beginning parts of what your goals are if they were to spur a discussion. So I want to thank you uh, a lot for your time. Um, And for those of you that are interested in reading the full article, uh, you can check out the citation and the, in the comments section. Um, Also the uh, more of the kind of femme materialism and affect is in the um, podcast right after this in the feed. So you can listen to that. So um, any final parting thoughts, any, uh, can we find, find you on social media or any other? Sure. Um, you can find me sometimes on social media, um, on Twitter, I guess at CJS2172. Okay. It's the same as my teacher's college email. Very original. Very original. Um, yeah. <laughs> So, and um, yeah, thank you for having me on and and chatting. I always feel like a conversation can always go on forever. Um, yeah. and, hopefully, this, and unfortunately, yeah. we can't have this conversation in person at ARA this year. Yeah. Which, yeah. Uh, congratulations again on the graduate thank student you. award. I think you uh, you fall in line with a ton of very productive scholars who have gotten that before. Um, so thanks again for those of you who are interested, uh, you can follow the podcast at the HPE podcast and check out our website, the HPE website.com. Um, and thank you, Carrie. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. We're so.